welcome to CAD Speaker Series podcast. This is the full recording of our Security and Development Seminar on Violence and Security and Development in Latin America. This seminar is the last of a series of four high-level discussions exploring the intersections between security, growth, and development in that region. They are led by Thomas Abt, Senior Research Fellow at CAD, and Joao Manuel Pino de Mello, Lehman Visiting Scholar at the David Rockefeller Center for Latin American Studies, and feature presentations from prominent academics, practitioners, and policymakers. The panelists featured in this session are Natalie Alvarado Renner, Citizen Security Lead Specialist at the Inter-American Development Bank, Daniel Ortega, Director of Impact Evaluation and Policy Learning at CAF, the Development Bank of Latin America, and Marcela Escobari, Visiting Fellow at Brookings Institution and former Assistant Administrator at USAID's Bureau for Latin America and the Caribbean. So today we'll be discussing violence and security and development in Latin America. I think that violence is best understood in, conduct, in context. It can be narrowly defined as the use of force causing physical injury, or it can more, be construed more broadly to include social injustice and economic deprivation. Violence comes in many forms, all somewhat similar and all somewhat different, each independent and yet dependent on the others. Here, we're going to be talking about a particular type of violence that, in my view, doesn't get sufficient attention in policy circles. Community violence is violence that happens in public, out in the streets, unlike intimate partner or domestic violence. It's disorganized, often impulsive. It's loosely planned at best, unlike the more organized violence uh, from terrorists, drug cartels, highly structured gangs, and so on. Community violence includes street crime, petty disputes that turn violent, and violence between small groups to the extent it remains local and relatively unstructured. Uh, while it may be mundane, uh, it may be common, and it may not be as exotic as other forms of crime and violence, because of its ubiquity, uh, community violence truly is everywhere. It accounts for more death and more destruction than any other form of non-state violence. Importantly for this discussion, community violence looks much the same uh, wherever you go. Its perpetrators and victims are usually, but not exclusively, young men from disadvantaged backgrounds and communities, the ninis who neither work nor study. And these boys have much in common with one another, whether they're from the favelas of Rio, the barrios of San Salvador, or even the ghettos of Chicago. Community violence may be common, but it is also quite complex. You can't simply blame it on a gang or a cartel or even a politician because community violence is a result of a pervasive social breakdown of incentives, norms, and values. In Latin America, crime and violence routinely rate as top concerns in public opinion surveys. Latin America is the only region in the world where rates of vi violence are increasing. Brazil is the world's most violent country in absolute terms, accounting for about 50,000 of the world's 450,000 homicides per year. El Salvador is the world's most violent country per capita, and Venezuela is home to Caracas, the world's most violent city. Of the world's 50 most violent cities, 43 are in Latin America. That said, violence is not everywhere in Latin America. It's important to remember that several countries, such as Chile, have relatively low rates of crime and violence. So how much of, 
how much of a problem is community violence in the region? Uh, and it's very hard to say, and that's part of the problem. In terms of homicides, community violence probably accounts for over half of all homicides in the region. Uh, domestic violence in the region accounts for about 10 to 15 percent of all homicides, according to official estimates. Estimates of drug and gang violence vary wildly, ranging from about 10 to 40 percent of all murders. But the rest of uh, those homicides overwhelmingly happen as a result of community violence. So how does one respond to community violence? Uh, there are no easy answers. Uh, some focus on improving institutions like the police force or the judiciary. Others look to specific programs that can be expanded or replicated over time. Some debate, debate which field or which discipline should be primarily responsible for addressing violence. Uh, the, the current debate is uh, between mostly public health using the medical model and the traditional criminal justice model. Tough versus soft, mano extendida versus mano dura uh, philosophies clash with one another. And they can often swing wildly uh, uh, from administration to administration as uh, new parties come into power. Now, there's not many people uh, out there who really understand the complexities of addressing violence as well as our panelists here today. Uh, and I'll introduce them now. Uh, Natalie Alvarado Renner is the Citizen Security Lead Specialist at the Inter-American Development Bank, or IDB, where she leads the bank's citizen security and justice team. She's defined the IDB's citizen security action strategy and knowledge agenda for Latin America and the Caribbean. She has 20 years of experience in the field, and her work on police reform, urban safety, and violence prevention has been published in international newspapers and academic journals. Uh, Daniel Ortega is the Director of Impact Evaluation and Policy Learning at the Development Bank of Latin America, also known as CAF. He is also an Associate Professor at Instituto de Estudios Superiores de Administración since 2004 and was previously a research economist at the Economic Advisory Office to the National Assembly of Venezuela. Welcome, Daniel. And Marcela Escobar is currently a visiting fellow at the Brookings Institute in D.C. But she recently stepped down from her position as President Obama's Assistant Administrator for Latin America and the Caribbean at the U.S. Agency for International Development. At USAID, Marcella was responsible for 13 bilateral missions, three regional missions, and U.S.-based programs focusing on demo democracy, humanitarian assistance, and the environment, among others. She also managed a, bu a budget of approximately $1 billion. And before that, she was right here at CID, where she served as our center's executive director. So welcome home, Marcella. So let's turn now to our discussion. Uh, I'm going to ask a number of questions of our panelists, and they're going to respond briefly. Uh, we will talk until uh, amongst ourselves here for uh, until about <laughs> 5.30, at which point we'll open it up for questions from the audience here in the room and watching live on Facebook. Uh, for those of you watching live on Facebook, there's no need to wait till the end. You can actually just type in your questions now and we'll keep track of them as we go. So just uh, to begin the discussion, until recently, it was quite difficult to get the development community to even recognize the importance of uh, addressing violence. But now the new SDGs include reducing violence, the Sustainable Development Goals, include reducing the violence and violent deaths for the first time. 
The, this nexus between violence and development has been especially salient in the region in Latin America. So for each of you, how do you, your organizations view the relationship between development and violence? Uh, Natalie, why don't we start with you and we'll work this way. Okay, uh, good afternoon. Uh, thank you, Thomas, for your invitation. I'm very, very happy to be here with all of you. Uh, as you know, uh, Latin America is facing a kind of uh, paradigm and because Latin America has shown a lot of progress in many uh, socioeconomic aspects. Poverty decrease, we have citizens in Latin America that are mm, more healthier, more educated, but in contrast to these positive uh, developments, crime and violence is increasing in the region. So there is not surprise why the uh, basically they're included as an indicator and a very important indicator in the development goals. So economic development uh, per se doesn't seem to be very sufficient to curve violence. At its core, it's also hard to think about sustainable development without security. Um, our economy might be growing, people are getting a little more rich, uh, there are more hospitals, more schools, but if people are afraid to be out on the street, afraid to go to the bank. So this is when we believe that we don't enjoy it, economic development. So for the IDB, we don't believe that um, basically uh, security issues is only security matters, it's also development. And let me tell you how we believe that uh, crime and violence is hinder economic development. First, it affects the most vulnerable uh, population in the region. The major cause uh, or leading cause for death in Latin America are youth between the age of 18 and 24 years old. And also, uh, crime and violence has a significant cost in the economies. We did a very recent uh, study in 17 countries, and we calculate that the cost uh, of uh, violence in the region is about 3% of its GDP. This is about 261 billion. And just to put that in context, this is basically the double, double the region's total amount that we invest <laughs> in infrastructure. The, co the cost of the violence in the region is almost twice the, w the, the cost in, for example, UK or USA. That means that governments are putting a lot of efforts and importance in this issue. The question here is, is that a spending effective? Thank you. That's a great, uh, great way to set the table. Uh, Daniel. Um, <clears throat> well, I think that the inclusion of violence uh, as part of the uh, sustainable development goals is basically a recognition of the fact, which is, has already a very long standing in the development uh, community, um, that we can't measure development uh, with one single indicator, right? Do we, so, so why do we think about, why did we begin to think about human development uh, 60 years or ago or so? Uh, well, uh, I think this is just a recognition that, um, um, you know, violence and its, uh, its different forms, different manifestations affect our level of well-being in a, in a way that cannot be captured by uh, a different statistic. So, so it's, I think it places the, the so, so one very important thing is that violence is important in itself, you know, as something that affects welfare directly. So I think that's, that's uh, one very 
important part of it. And of course, um, there's the discussion of, you know, how does that affect other decisions? You know, decisions that will lead to underinvestment in human capital, underinvestment in physical capital, et cetera, et cetera. Like decision making that will affect other indicators of well-being that we have. But I think the key part of it is the recognition by the international development community that violence in and of itself needs to be taken into account when we, uh, when, when we try to measure our level of well-being as, as, as societies. Um, and I think that this is uh, uh, basically a very significant, important uh, step in order to, to put this discussion at uh, a, a, the level where it, it should be. And in fact, this, I think it ties into um, another debate or an, uh, an observation that uh, violence uh, is sort of worldwide violence is decreasing, right? Uh, there's uh, 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 Steven Pinker has uh, written a, a very influential uh, book on this topic, and, and it's, it's very interesting. You look at trends from the Middle Ages, and this is, you know, it's very strong. Um, but Latin America poses itself as a, um, you know, a, a paradox in this context. So in this context, Latin America is, does not seem to be exhibiting these uh, downward trends that you see elsewhere in the world. And we really need to, um, to think hard about what is special about Latin America uh, in this respect. And so uh, I think this just opens up uh, a big uh, bag of questions for, for everyone. I think, uh, you know, one of the things that Pinker documents is the sort of decline of uh, formal conflict, both the sort of across human history and over the past uh, 100 years. But the, the notion of informal conflict and disorganized conflict, uh, you know, remains uh, resilient, even as we make progress on, on formal conflict. Uh, Marcel, let me change it a little bit for, for you. Uh, you know, um, not talking about the development community specifically, but the, the United <laughs> States government. And uh, your work as a political appointee um, how did you how did you address the issue of violence in connection with development? Well, thank you, Thomas. It's great to be here. Um, so much of what I did at USAID for the year that I was there uh, was focused on the conflict in Central America and the migration crisis in the Northern Triangle, uh, trying to think of uh, humanitarian responses to the crisis in Venezuela and trying to get Congress to continue to support the peace process in Colombia. All of these countries and areas are, are, are places where violence is, is, is a priority. Um, but I think one of the th insights that came to me, and more so coming from this world, having been at CID and graduating from the Kennedy School, was the importance of marrying um, the evidence-based uh, approaches to development problems and to violence in particular to the political reality of governments. Because in the end of the day, it is governments who mostly fund these type of programs and foreign uh, governments, in, uh, um, as is the case with the, with the US. And uh, just to give you a glimpse how these two uh, are not as obviously aligned, I mean, I think it was on my first day at the job where I got sworn in, I, you know, all the fun part, and then I'm told that in two weeks, I have a meeting with the vice president. I'm like, well, cool. I'm like, well, he's pissed. I'm like, pissed? 
yeah, you know, he's, you know, very upset. And I was like, well, what, what, what have I done? What have we done? Why is he pissed and why do I have to show up in like two weeks? He's like, well, uh, you know, it, he's upset that for the funds that we put for Central America, uh, we're not spending fast enough. I was like, I've never been accused of not spending fast enough, not on the home front, not on jobs. Um, but it was this political reality of understanding where this was coming from, um, which was that the vice president, after the immigration crisis of uh, 2014, where I think over 50,000 unaccompanied children crossed the border, he personally went to Congress and to France, picked up the phone, and lobbied for a package of $750 million to Central America. Uh, to deal with the migration crisis. And what was novel, which would not be novel in this, uh, with this group of people, is that that money was to be spent on the root causes of migration. And these were violence, economic opportunity, and governance. And, uh, and that was novel because usually you dealt with immigration on the border. But if I went to that meeting with the things that you know, we talk about here a lot and say, well, immigration, not really a problem. 50,000, you know, which is what Lantis, I think, is going to talk about tomorrow. And by the way, development takes time. I would have been thrown out of that room. So understanding that unless you're able to tie the things that that political context needed, which is an understanding of how violence and, and, and development affect migration flows, you know, we wouldn't have been able to maintain the uh, the uh, the interest in continuing to fund the projects that we've been working on, and many of which have had a lot of success in uh, in the region. So, I want to maybe uh, uh, ask a follow-up question about that. Um, you know, the increasingly the development community and the policy community generally has the demand for evidence and data and more rigorous evidence and more rigorous data has been increasing. And I know that in each of your portfolios, you've been interested in increasing the knowledge, uh, a knowledge base uh, generally, but also particularly with regard to community vi violence. Uh, you know, um, Natalie and Daniel, can you talk about some of your efforts to increase the uh, knowledge base uh, and uh, uh, with regard to community violence and violence generally in the region? And then. Uh, and then, Marcella, maybe we'll come back to you to talk about some of the challenges and obstacles uh, in getting that uh, violence, uh, getting that evidence interpreted with political leaders. Do you want me to start, Daniel? Thank you. <laughs> okay. Uh, unlike, I would say, unlike other development areas like uh, health and education, uh, where is the really robust uh, evidence about what works, uh, crime and violence are uh, still understudy um, uh, areas. So all the knowledge that we can get from developed, from developed countries is very necessary, is very important, and we need it. But we have to understand also the uh, difference in, uh, for example, the on-ground uh, realities, the uh, uh, capabilities that we have in the countries to really undertake this evaluation, as well as the cost. So we cannot only replicate, we must to adjust those to the realities of the countries. Um, we have actually one example. Um, we tried to replicate the Youth Build Program, which is a program to uh, basically reinsert youth at risk into the uh, labor market. And we tried to do that in El Salvador. 
it was really difficult. First, because um, uh, the implementators had security problems. They were very afraid to go and capture uh, the beneficiaries. And the beneficiaries were really afraid of being, or, or they, that they had retaliation because they were part of gangs, etc., etc. So we have to take into account that just implementing um, a straightforward or thinking that we can implement um, other experience without taking account of the reality of the countries is not, uh, uh, the outcome is not always uh, positive. On the same time, I wanted just to finish by saying that in some ways, um, when we think about Latin American pla places and communities, uh, we can refer also or uh, of violence uh, neighborhoods in the United States. So, you know, it's, it's, it's don't realities of violence can be very useful also to understand which programs in settings that are similar, because we know there are places in America that are as, as violent as in, in Latin America. And as well, also experience from the social science. We know that um, a lot of, uh, for example, that, that uh, uh, people basic needs to be cared, to be productive, are very similar everywhere. So taking those lessons from the evidence that are more, that evolve and that have more evidence will be very beneficial for um, for Latin America. I, I, I have to say that we have some barriers to do that, but we will probably talk to later about the barriers of doing evidence-based policies in Latin America. Yes. So <clears throat> the approach that we have uh, towards uh, building a stronger evidence, broadening the evidence base for decision-making in this area in Latin America is actually very s similar in spirit to our general approach to broadening the evidence base in decision-making in other sectors as well, uh, which is basically trying to help institutions learn about what they do. So we are, sort of, we are focused, so, so the impact evaluation work that we promote is seeking to help institutions um, use impact evaluation as a management tool with the aim of eventually promoting, a, instilling a culture of learning in the public sector. Now, what does that mean? That means that what we want in order to actually get actionable and useful knowledge on the ground in the specific context of Guatemala, of Venezuela, of Colombia, is, is to have uh, rich diagnostics in each country, uh, consistent logical, theoretical, conceptual frameworks for understanding um, the, the reality on the ground, and innovations, interventions about delivering pot potentially new interventions or delivering the existing services in a more effective or more efficient way. So policing services, uh, do you want to do, um, do you want to do hotspots policing or do you want to do something else? Do you want, so, uh, so oftentimes it's about helping governments learn about how to deliver a given service that they've already decided to deliver and not necessarily about whether to do something or not, right? So it's not only about evaluating uh, whether you should do a policy, but 
once you've decided to provide public safety, how do you do that? You like, you, like in how, if, you pro, if, you, if you're thinking about something specific like police patrol, you know, how do you do that? Right. So that, that's something that, um, that we, but we, our focus is on helping the institutions learn. It's, you know, because we know that even though, uh, you know, evidence and science that comes from elsewhere is very interesting and very important in informing our priors about what kinds of things should work but really what we, what we really need is for institutions to learn about what they do, transform their, their experience into knowledge, which is called learning, uh, and then to continue in this process con you know, uh, by themselves. And so, so I think that that's sort, of, that's sort of our overall approach. And this is uh, something that we've actually done fairly with some success in, with a couple of institutions. Uh, in, in the region. Right. To add to this around the importance of evidence, uh, before we talk about the constraints, I can't tell you how valuable it is in making the political arguments and, and having policies continue through time. So the CARSI initiative in Central America that started with a handful of communities and $10 million in a few, you know, uh, in a few places on and place. Just a CARSI stands for Central American Regional Security Initiative. Exactly. And uh, it, um, it, it was this place-based approach of a, of a variety of different services that iterated upon itself. They did a, a baseline, and, and then the government took it on and started using some of the learnings and expanded it. And then it ended up growing to 100 millions a few years later. And uh, the recent randomized studies, which I think was led by Vanderbilt, show that in some many of the communities where, where, where all of these ser services were, were done right, homicides went down 66%. And this is probably one of the data points that I have heard most cited in, in our whole uh, Central America strategy because we were able to, to measure that. And at this point, it's the largest piece of the Central American strategy, around 300 million after seven years of seeing success in that. And you know, having seen it a little bit on, 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 on the ground, when you go to some of these communities, right? Uh, there, everything has broken down. Like I got to visit Riviera Hernandez in San Pedro Sula, in Honduras, which is probably on your top ten s most violent cities. Just in just the world. recently fell from the world's most violent city. Uh, um, now the most. Uh, it was it the third. Went the from San Pedro Sula to San Salvador, and now it's unfortunately correct. Yes. All right. Top three, and 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 this this one neighborhood is was you know incredibly violent. I think just a neighborhood. You know, ten streets by ten streets had like two hundred homicides in a year, and the gangs owned every single street to the point that crossing the street was risking your life. And if the school, and this is what happened, the school was on the wrong side of, 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 of town, literally half of the neighborhood could not go to school in the morning because they, their lives uh, would be threatened. Not even a, a, you know, a Coke truck could enter this neighborhood. And you know that when McDonald's and Coke can't enter a neighborhood, <laughs> things are really bad. Um, and uh, and we we went uh, into some of these places which they've been working for a long time, and of course we went on a you know heavy armored right. motorcade, uh, unconspicuous as we usually are in the U.S. government. No, and uh, and what we saw that really worked just to give you the, the this one example is, you know, 
when they threw everything under the kitchen sink, right? Like what was working is when communities were taking back their neighborhoods, where bits of infrastructure projects were creating the, the soccer fields, where community policing had entered in the way that police interacts with the youth. They had taken back the schools. They had built youth centers. They had, you know, so uh, built daycare centers where the gang members were taking their kids. Right. Right? So anyway, just, just to say that when all of these things came together, these communities were able to bring, I think, in that one community from 200 homicides a year to 70. Right. But it was, unless we measure it and reiterate, you know, uh, you know, we're not able to scale it at the level that, that it really changed the dynamic in a whole country. Right. So let's, let's build on that answer and talk about what works. And Dan, we'll start with you and then uh, to you, Natalie. Uh, you know, uh, there are these there are these sort of massive debates. Uh, some people believe that what works is to focus on the root causes, things like poverty or inequality. Others say that focused solutions that identify and prioritize the highest risk places and in individuals are what we need to do. Um, in your experience, based on uh, based on the research that you've conducted yourself and that you're familiar with, you know, uh, what are the strategies that have been uh, demonstrated to be effective? Well, that's a difficult question because the the true, like the true true answer is that I don't know, um, but because I think that that is just um, not entirely. Uh, clear, you know, what the right mix of, of policies Are there is. emerging signals? Now, I, yeah, so, so, so th that said, I think that most of the evidence points to uh, focusing on places, people, and behaviors that are high risk of violence. I think that, and that most of that evidence comes from uh, primarily the U.S. Uh, some of it, a little bit comes from uh, from um, uh, from Latin America, not very much. Uh, however, there's also evidence that root causes are actually important, like unemployment. Uh, that's a, it's important inequality. There, 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 there are like we don't care for like cross-country correlations anymore. We 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 are past that kind of uh, evidence. Uh, you know, we've been past that for for 20 years. Uh, but there there is rigorous evidence at the micro le level, um, evidence showing that inequality can, in do it does increase uh, uh, violence. So and that, that's, a, that's a pressing question. Uh, does that, is that replicated in, in aggregate cross-country correlations? It turns out that it is. That's not the piece of evidence that I want to highlight. I want to highlight the fact that there are uh, you know, studies using credible uh, uh, causal studies showing the, the link between these two. So I think that these two, like targeted strategies uh, and uh, root cause strategies, so to speak, they are uh, not mutually exclusive. You can, um, I, th I think you need a portfolio of both, just like you need, you know, a mix of control and prevention strategies. Uh, um, in, in some ways, um, uh, I, I think this is this is where sort of the signals take us, but just to give you an example of how uh, carefully we need to take this discussion, especially uh, for example with with respect to to policing, uh, 
Uh, we just finished last year running the, the largest randomized controlled trial ever done on hotspots policing. Uh, we did that in Colombia with uh, 750 uh, treated hotspots uh, and uh, uh, about 1,000 control hotspots. Um, and we looked at crime in every street in the city. So this is a, this is a, a city that has a, a little over 136,000 blocks. Okay, so we looked at crime in every single one. Um, and it turns out that, yes, hotspots policing reduces crime at the hotspot. And uh, this, um, so this is great news. And for the most, like most of the literature f that comes from the U.S. and the U.K. Uh, suggests that crime uh, does not get displaced. Once you focus your policing, t policing time uh, at the hotspot, uh, crime will not move around the corner. This is sort of the, 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 the standing um, uh, sort of conventional wisdom at this point is that. Okay? Right, and just, just for the audience, uh, if you don't know, a hotspot is a, uh, a micro-location, often just a small number of blocks where crime concentrates. That's what uh, Hans. Right. Yes. Uh, thank you for that. Um, uh, in every city where this has been studied, uh, you see that there is an over concentration of crime in a very few fraction of the street of the uh, you know city blocks. Okay. Um, so this has been the pressing question: Does crime displace or not? And our study is the first one that can actually credibly answer this question because of its scale. And it turns out that we actually do find uh, some displacement of property crime. So it turns out that when you look at the aggregate, even though there's a very small amount of displacement, because there are so many streets you know, to which uh, property crime can displace, it turns out that the aggregate effect citywide, you know, it turns out that it's not so clear that crime falls. And but if you look at violence, which is our topic today, it does seem to be the case that crime does not displace so much. So maybe the link between violence and place is stronger than the link between property crime and place. So this would be an argument for targeted, like geographically targeted strategies to reduce violence. But I think that just, a, it just this whole discussion is very nuanced. We need, we need to take it very carefully, and we need to, as I said before, uh, build the evidence base from the ground in every context. Natalie. Um, I think Daniel uh, brought very interesting uh, uh, points. I want to just to, uh, to add two elements. The first one that we really believe is that addressing the root causes with uh, let's say general social policies n that's not always uh, work to reduce violence. Uh, let's take, for example, poverty. The last decade in Latin America, we reduced poverty from uh, 45 to 25%, but crime is still very high. Another example, and I had the experience um, visiting two projects, one in Honduras and in Brazil with the uh, urban upgrading projects. Uh, we improve the social services on those areas. We improve as well the infrastructure, but crime and violence was still very high. So the lesson for that, and, and especially taking into account what Danielle said about um, the concentration of crime, and actually today we already say that is the law of concentration in, in people and in place. So 
we believe that the things that have been working is especially is policies that focus on security and vulnerable places geographically and on people. And when I say vulnerable people, it's women, youth, and children. So the general idea that we do with projects at the IDB is we pilot, we taste, we evaluate, and if that works, we help to upscale. And this is something that uh, is been working in different projects and we see some results. Now going to the second part about uh, what works, uh, I agree, we don't have many evidence from Latin, America, from Latin America, but we start having some of them that show some promising results. Let's take, for example, in social prevention. We, we know exactly that early child education has been showing some very important results in reducing aggression later in life. The problem with this type of, 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 of uh, intervention is the cost. As you know, it's very dedicated, it's one-to-one. -one. So this is something that even governments in Latin America are, are taking into account. But it's good evidence. It shows that changing behaviors is very important. For example, in, in, in terms of youth, um, uh, youth violence, we know that behavioral change are uh, having good results in terms of uh, uh, developing soft skills. And uh, we talked early with, with, with Thomas about not only the technical skills, but also the soft skills are very important for the reinsertion of prisoners later on in life. In terms of policing, you know, uh, Daniel already mentioned hotspot. We have mixed evidence. We did an evaluation in Uruguay. We didn't, we didn't, uh, we didn't, we didn't uh, uh, found displacement, but probably the, the, the it was in a, a small scale. Um, but um, I think it is promising evidence in the whole spot. Um, in terms of technology, I wanted just to mention something. There is uh, the governments are very excited of buying cameras and buying uh, also different toys. And we have some evidence for the cameras to work for a certain type of, of crime, and then we should know that. And not only buying camera because this is the way of, of showing that we're doing something in security, especially governments, but also is the human capital behind, behind those cameras. I had the experience in one country in Central America, and that was really not uh, very uh, comfortable. I was visiting one of the command, uh, the central command in one of those countries, and there were cameras um, everywhere, screens everywhere that were monitoring the crime and violence in the city. Suddenly, the, uh, the alarm start up, so there were some incidents somewhere. Then we couldn't locate which camera or which screen we were seeing the incident. And when we finally, after 10 minutes, you know, would look in another cameras, exactly, this is what happened. You know, the incident was gone, and then they say, okay, let's zoom the, the license plate. We couldn't zoom the license plate. So that is, it's just a simple example to show you that behind technology, we should put also a human capital that can be used, so good technology, but with the human capital that can use and, and take advantage of that. Right. I've been to uh, um, you know, crime analysis centers in the United States where they have very sophisticated cameras uh, where uh, basically uh, they've got the cameras set up, the, the data is coming in, but there are no police officers to look at the data. So it's completely useless just sitting there. Uh, and this goes to Daniel's point about implementation. It's not just about <laughs> choosing the right strategy. It's also about how you implement that strategy. Uh, you know, so we're, we've been talking about this issue of sort of 
working from the outside in, you know, working first on root causes and then getting to violence, or working from the inside out, focusing first on, the, on violence uh, and hoping to impact root causes in that way. Let's assume that you're in the hot spot, you're working with the right, uh, the right group of people. Um, what's the appropriate blend of strat strategies there? Uh, and I would just point out that, you know, in Latin America, in many communities uh, in Latin America, the, the impunity levels are astounding. 90 to 95 percent of homicides in, in some countries go completely unpunished or unprosecuted. Uh, but at the same time, uh, there's a history uh, of extremely aggressive, tough-on-crime measures, manodura strategies, as also not having been uh, uh, successful. So, you know, there's this seesaw effect of policy. If you're in the right place working with the right people, what's the appropriate balance between those approaches? Uh, who, Marcella, do you want to begin, and then we'll sure. Work I down mean, the line? I can I can start with what I what I saw on the ground, which is in and in these particular places where places I was visiting, where it was where violence was pervasive, right? Like everything else had stopped because people were not safe. I mean, and uh, and there it seemed that you were looking at alternative uh, efforts from the Manodura. The Manodura had obviously not worked to, um, you know, to really deal with the, with the gang issue. And it goes to some of the issues that, uh, that you both were mentioning. Like, at the end, the social issues of following the youth and the opportunities for the youth made a big difference. But that's a long chain, right? That happens from primary school and then it secondary school and then workforce development, but it's not just teaching them skills. You actually need to place them in places and follow them, each kid, to make sure that they keep that job. And if they don't keep it, and it's why, and they know that because, and, and you have to talk to the, to, to the actual firms that are hiring them, because when they see in a CV that they come from any of these three neighborhoods, they won't hire them, because they know that they either are part of the gang or have you know, relationships with the gang. So it, it was a whole community approach at all levels for it to work. And the police is something that, for me, astounded me the most. Because I've been hearing, learning from you around community policing, and it all sounds really good. But you go to these places, and you've been in Latin America, the idea of community policing seems like a very foreign concept. People fear seeing a policeman more than they fear, you know, seeing a thief. And, and yet, I saw it working, literally in these places where uh, the police had been trained. The head of, of the police said that when this crime had gone down tremendously, people were stopping him in the street to say, you know, everything really changed when you brought that new police force, that whole community policing thing. And these people are, you know, much more humane, much, you know, people are looking up after us. And he said, you know what, I didn't switch one person. It's the same police. They just went through this intensive training, and you heard them, of trying to understand the problem from the perspective of the youth and what they've been going through to create empathy for the people they were dealing with. So I do think that that uh, that these approaches that you know that that permeate every part of society in these hotspots um, is you know I've seen it have potential. So I'm hearing sort of a both and strategy. Yes. Okay, uh, Daniel. <clears throat> this is a great point that Marcela is raising, uh, which we haven't m touched upon before, which is the crisis of uh, legitimacy, legitimacy of the state in Latin America as a consequence 
of the failure of our states to provide basic services, among them, you know, public safety. Uh, so the general distrust in the police is something that is really, really, really makes policing a difficult job to do. If you want to do it right, you know, you don't, people don't trust you, which is what actually happens, uh, then it's just a much more uphill battle in general. So I think this is a very important point, um, and that's why I think police reform efforts are really important. But ultimately, if you think about the balance between prevention and control, this is a way of, of putting it, um, <clears throat> I think we need to do both. So this is the short answer is to do both. And, uh <clears throat> but if you think about it, we've already decided to do both. Like we have, we're not, we've decided to have, as societies, we, we have like a department of urban upgrading, right? So we, we have a, a responsible person or group of people for having clean streets, having street lighting, having like nice parks. We have all of these things that are, we have decided as societies that we want. We're just in most cases not able to deliver on that. So we have no street lighting, we have garbage in the streets, we have like, uh, so, so why don't we just think about delivering actually what we're, of our, of our, what we've already decided to deliver. So that's why, that's why in many cases the question is not what to do, but how to do what you've already decided to do. Like provide basic policing services. We don't do that. Well, we, don't, we actually don't do that because let me, let me just give you one example, uh, and, and I'll, I'll leave it at that. Um, we, I was doing a study with an important police department in Latin America, and we were seeing, look, so the study was based like, was actually a hotspot study. So we designed, we identified the hotspots, and we told the, the police officers, okay, this is where you need to go at this time of the day, this many times. And so they said, oh, yes, 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 we'll do it, we'll do it. And then when we started monitoring their compliance, it was just, they, weren't del they were delivering about 15% of the target amount of time they were supposed to deliver at the hotspots, okay? So because we were monitoring with GPS and all that. And so we started trying to dig in, trying to understand what was going on. Why were we not able to deliver this specific thing that we were, it turns out that, you know, after many months of trying to understand, we said, let's do a census of police and try to understand their motivations and see, you know, their leadership, you know, what, how they view their job, their commitment to society, you know, all these stuff. So we said, let's do a census. And this is a police department that had about 800 uh, sworn officers. It turns out that we found out by trying to do a census that about 40% of the sworn officers would never show up to work over the course of two months. And they were either, so, and they were not necessarily on medical leave. <laughs> so this is, this is just highlighting a very basic thing. You, we, I mean, we are not able to provide very basic things. Right. We don't really, I mean, of course, I, I, and, and I do, th I, I understand, I mean, I'm from Venezuela, I live in Caracas, and I have lived through the OLPs, which is the or the or the Organización for the Liberation of the People, or something like that, which is basically death squads, of government death squads that go into poor neighborhoods and kill 
people, this is like the extreme version of mano dura, and obviously it doesn't work. You know, crystal homicides are up. You know, it's, so it's it's just the um, so governments sometimes try to to innovate, trying to do like really new things and try to show when basic provision, like basic stuff, we can't do. We we just can't deliver. So I think that it, it's it would be useful to say. We've already, as societies, like in our legal frameworks and our constitutions and everything, we already have a certain amount of balance between these two. Why don't we start delivering that, and then we can take the discussion a little bit further and see you know, where right. we want to prioritize. That's right. Natalie. Well, I think uh, we, we touched on, on a very important point. It's about the institutions in Latin America. Who are the police officers? Who are the people who are delivering the justice service? So, for example, only 40% of the citizens in Latin America trust the police, and 30 trust the justice systems. And I think we are talking in, in, uh, something very important here about the role and the function and services that, be, that, has, that have to be provided by the security service. The problem is that we work with governments, and governments are involved in politics. Governance has to show results. And you know, when we talk about the long prevention, social prevention intervention, they say it takes too long. No, it doesn't serve me. And this is why, for example, we work a lot with governments. The right balance is something that we, we, we find out to be very effective in engaging, engaging governments to work in a specific citizen security projects. And, and the balance is basically the combination of the control and deterrence interventions, like hotspot policing. Uh, we have also uh, some interventions like uh, improvement of the public places. So we have some results that give some breathing for start social interventions. And, and in social interventions, we work you know, targeting the, the, the most important factors that are linked to violence in one place. So I think this is something that's been working really good. We give uh, a, a good balance, and we respond that gover to governments that they need to address the issue. And sometimes they do it like a mano dura, putting more police on the street or putting more people in prisons. And we know for evidence it doesn't work. So this is something that, uh, in my own work, has has intrigued me. Uh, you know, as we request, you know, more and better and more rigorous evidence of effectiveness, uh, we often don't acknowledge that there is a bias w associated with rigorous evidence, which is the most rigorous evidence uh, is generated by narrow evaluations of specific individual programs. You don't have rigorous evidence, uh, generally speaking, uh, looking at a massive institutional change that has you know, dozens uh, of moving pieces. And so when you say we want to make decisions based on rigorous evidence, the answer is almost always going to be a programmatic intervention because that's how the evidence works. And I think that that's uh, a challenge because as we've heard, uh, there, you know, without capable institutions to develop, uh, to, to deliver these, inst uh, these interventions, uh, they won't work. I think for me, I think there's, you know, there, there's no answer in terms of, you know, either or. You either work on institutions or you work on programs. But I think one of the key things is that uh, they have to be mutually reinforcing. So you need to pick interventions that ultimately will enhance the capacity 
of the institutions that they're working in and won't distract them or send them down sort of side paths. And I think I, I clearly that, that finding, uh, although I'm sure it was politically uh, a little bit uncomfortable, was incredibly important in, in terms of your hotspots work. Um, so I, thi I, I think that that's a, a very interesting um, question. Um, what's the future for your organizations? Uh, you know, Natalie, you know, what role as you, uh, will IDB play moving forward in controlling uh, and addressing uh, violence? Uh, and uh, Daniel, I'll ask the same thing. Uh, of you and Marcella, I'll, I'll ask you to sort of look into your crystal ball, uh, although you're not with the administration anymore, and, and you know, what can we expect from Trump in this area? So. Okay, as uh, we've just uh, been talking, um, you know, addressing crime and violence is, is very complex. At the IDB, we have basically an approach in two uh, areas. One is focused on social prevention, and the other one is the strengthening of the institutions, security institutions. Regarding um, the social prevention, we aim to mitigate basically the risk factors associated with uh, the most vulnerable, generally youth, that they have risk that we uh, basically borrow from the uh, uh, public health, which are individual, some uh, uh, at, the at, the at the family level, and others at the community. Regarding to the institution, I think we, this is the, the, the crucial uh, uh, part for us, and I think it's, it's important that we have strong institutions that can implement programs. For example, in policing, while developed countries are more focused on strategies on policing, in Latin America we have to focus on something that I call the prof professionalization of the police. Let me tell you something. We started work on 2012 to reform the police of Honduras. Actually, at the IDB, they, you know, everybody was thinking we were crazy. You know, we're n never in the most violent country with the most, uh, the, the, the most uh, um, weak institutions. So how we can do something like that? I remember going to the police station and see that the buildings were completely old. Police officers just have a few months of training. Um, they were, you know, payment was really low. So we decided that we have to start reforming police from within. So training was important, recruiting, who is the police, pay, you know, the quality of work, and also the oversight mechanisms. So basically what, the, what we did, and I think this is an example for the rest of the region, is what we call the dignification of the profession. It's not to be the policing only a job, but a profession. So I think, and we saw the results. Now we see that Honduras is changing. Now, you know, the police officers, they believe they have a future as, a pro as, as being a professional in the police. So that is a, is a, is a, is a quite very important example for us I when we reform police. I, I saw that speaking with uh, police chiefs in Honduras Wonderful. Uh, about a year ago. Wonderful. Yeah. Happy to hear that. In the criminal justice, uh, because we believe also it is important piece in this chain of uh, criminal justice, we improve basically the efficiency of the administration uh, and, uh, and uh, justice services. Uh, today we have uh, quite 
a lot of programs in what we call the digi digi digitalization of uh, um, uh, code records. And I don't, I don't know if you know, but many of the records and the justice records are on paper still in Latin America. So a lot of case, cases are, are, are lost. We are also strengthening the prosecutor's offices, basically helping them in the investigative uh, capabilities. And uh, finally, we are also working with, the, uh, with prisons. I know it's not very popular for governments to work in prisons. Generally, what, when they think about reforming prisons is creating and building more prisons. At the IDB, we focus uh, uh, in the rehabilitation, in the human, and so they can reinsert socially and economically. We have two, uh, and I'm going to finish just by that, two, um, I think as an example of good projects in Panama and in Costa Rica, where our emphasis were more in the rehabilitative, rehabilitative part than in the punitive part. So it, this is a, a, a center of rehabilitation in Panama. It's called PACORA. And I was impressed not only by the quality of the work and that they delivered there, you know, but also for the sense of hope that they was given to those kids. That's great. They felt like, uh, you know, uh, they have a future, they have a second chance. And actually, I visited one of the workshops. It was the painting workshop. And one of the kids told me, and I, and I remember that very clear, I never forget. He said, if I could choose between a pencil and a gun, he would now shoot the pencil. In 10 years, in 10 years, I want to be famous. So what that, that shows us That's is that giving hope works. Yes, and let's, let's, now let's leave, maybe leave it there. Uh, and just to give it the evidence, okay. is that the recidivism rate, it was lower in this prison than the rest of the country. Excellent. Thank you. Excellent. Uh, Daniel, just a, just a, a short answer about uh, where CAF is going in the, on this. Well, I think the role of institutions such as ours is to help governments uh, overcome the short-sightedness of political um, cycles. And uh, in that sense, I think we can help uh, governments o you know, overcome this discussion between programs or institutions. Um, between prevention and control, uh, and basically uh, trying to uh, well help institutions um, think about um, how to deliver uh, better services, and think about. I think the most important part of all of it is to help institutions. Uh, as I said before, transform their experience into knowledge. I think this is, this is sort of the key to all of it. Um, because ultimately what it will imply is that you'll, you'll I mean, it's, and, and so the discussion between, you know, rigorous evidence uh, that, you know, pulls you to programs, as you were saying before, you know, is, is unnecessary if you think that what really matters is learning and not necessarily how exactly you learn. You can actually learn a lot by just having a very good description of what goes on. You can, ha you can learn a lot by having a good quality you know, um, uh, uh, focus group, for example. You can learn uh, a lot, obviously, from a rigorous impact evaluation, from a randomized controlled trial. And the key is that 
institutions learn how to learn. This is sort of the, the, the I think, the, the basic point, because this will allow institutions to think about, um, question, question the way that they're doing things, try different things, uh, and be serious about trying to measure uh, as best as possible, right? Uh, sometimes you won't be able to have a you know very credible counterfactual to compare something that you've done to, uh, but that's okay. I mean, I think that what what really matters is that institutions um, uh, become learning institutions, right? And that is what will allow them to overcome the distinction between programs or the debate between programs and institutions, which is fallacious. Right. So we'll stop there. Mm -hmm. Very briefly, what's going to happen mm -hmm. uh, uh, in, in, uh, in the area of USAID in this Because area. Trump is also pissed. <laughs> we'll comment on that. Um, look, uh, Post-election, right after we all went through our coping mechanisms, going back to USAID, I think my message was clear that there are things with the mess that is Northern Triangle, I, I, I really believe that you are seeing progress. Uh, I mean, these could be failed states, and instead you're seeing improvements in governance, coordination among them, improvement in violence. And uh, so there's a lot that is going in the right direction. And helping other countries and foreign aid is the right thing to do, but it's also the smart thing to do. So, uh, and more so when you think about the things that the U.S. cares about from stability, drugs, immigration, everything. It just makes sense. So my, my point to our agency was we've got the data. It's important to continue to do so, mm -hmm. and this is the time to be very forward with, uh, with pushing the agenda and why. So we wrote memos, all with a little bit of national security bend, you know, a little bit more than before. I met with every conservative think tank that existed, members of Congress, and just say, okay, you know, we have to continue to do this. Now, uh, we haven't seen a lot of evidence of, you know, evidence-based policy making from the White House. But I think this is going to be a long road, and, uh, and the evidence is on our side that, that it makes sense to continue. And it'll just be a battle from Congress and the institutions that have been doing this for a long time. Because the importance, like I said, I don't know if a million dollars or a you know, billion dollars, $750 million was the right amount that the U.S. should give to Central America for these issues. But what really hurts development is when we go up and down and up and down because we uh, you know, we, we really take out the capacity from within the countries. So I think what's important is that we have a steady hand in continuing the advances. Excellent. Well, with that, I just want to uh, th uh, thank everyone uh, for participating. Let's uh, give our participants, our panelists, a big hand. If you want to learn more about CID and our events, please visit cid.harvard.edu.